And so our sermon text this afternoon is the genealogy found in Luke chapter 3, which is from verses 23 to 38. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. And before we have that text, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures. We pray, Father, that you would make our hearts and minds ready to receive it for that which it truly is, the very words of God. Please give me wisdom as I speak. And may we all have wisdom as we hear. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Maphat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mathathias, the son of Semine, the son of Joshek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosem, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Maphat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ani, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So today, we're studying a genealogy, a list of names, the son of, the son of, the son of. And so, first of all, we ask the question, why? Why would such a thing be recorded for us in Scripture? Well, the purpose of genealogy is to, is to basically prove that a person has legitimate claims to being an Israelite. That's the basic purpose of any genealogy you find in the Holy Scriptures, that that person has legitimate claims to that covenant relationship with God. And as we took for our New Testament reading, the genealogy at the start of the book of Matthew, and then we just read the genealogy from Luke. Now, I know you're, you know, you're reasonably bright people. You would say to me, they are not the same genealogy. There's a difference there. 
depending on how you look at it, if you look at it in terms of going from Joseph back into time, two different fathers are recorded for Joseph. Or if you look at it coming from back in time at David down to Joseph, two different lines are recorded coming out of David. In Matthew, the descent is through Solomon. In Luke, the descent is through another son of David called Nathan. And let's talk about that. Why is it different? Now, I'm teaching you that the scripture is true, that the scripture is always true, that God's word is true, that God's word is reliable. But here we've got something that appears to be a conflict. And the question immediately arises, why would there be a conflict? Who got it right? Who got it wrong? I'm telling you that the answer is both are correct. You say to me, how do you come to that conclusion? They're not the same. And I'm saying that they are correct in different ways for a particular reason. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard there is a, there is a very common approach to this. And if I know that you, for example, have a MacArthur Study Bible. MacArthur himself, and I've listened to his sermon on this, and I've read the text of his sermon, and I've read the study Bible, and I've read his commentary. He goes to a great deal of trouble to trace this genealogy through Mary. He says, or he teaches, that this genealogy traces the descent to Jesus through the family of Mary, even though it doesn't mention Mary, it mentions only Joseph, because that would have been the legal custom of the day. It's kind of like it wasn't so long back that um, it wouldn't have been unusual for Lisa to receive mail addressed to Mrs Scott Clements. It doesn't happen much anymore. No one really works that way anymore. It would now be addressed to Lisa Clements. But even into the late 70s, it was still very common. My, my mother would get mail coming to her to Mrs Harold Clements meaning the wife of Harold Clements. And so it's kind of like that kind of approach that MacArthur and many other very respectable, very good men will take. And they'll say, so what we have here is the genealogy of Mary and it's being spoken of because Mary is now one with her husband, so it's being spoken of as though of Joseph. Now, my problem there is doesn't say anything about that anywhere in the text. I realise that it's a possible solution to the problem, but it doesn't say that. So I'm saying there's a very simple and biblical explanation as to why things change between one genealogy and the other. When it comes to who was the father of Joseph, that's the question. Joseph the head of the household into which Jesus was born, who was his father? Was his father Heli, as recorded in Luke, or was his father Jacob, as recorded in Matthew? And my answer is, you can correctly and honestly say both. How can a person have two fathers? Well, are we speaking of the bloodline genetically or are we speaking of legal inheritance? Let's go back and look 
at an Old Testament example. There's a very clear Old Testament example. I want you to turn in your Bibles back to the book of Ruth. I ask you a question. Whose son was Obed? Obed is the baby who was born of Ruth at the end of the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Whose son was Obed? So let's read from verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Oh, Boaz is the father of Obed. Let's read on. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighbourhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So there it is. Obed is his father. But what was the method and the purpose of his being born? How is it that Boaz ended up married to Ruth? Let's go further back into the chapter. Verse 5. Boaz speaking to the other unnamed potential redeemer of Ruth and her family. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair it for my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilion, and to Marlon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So I ask you again, who is the father of Obed? And you've got two different answers. If you're simply asking about the bloodline, if you're simply asking about the line of genetic descent, the father of Obed is Boaz. But imagine that Obed had a court case before the elders in the city gate, and it was a court case concerning his allotted inherited land that was distributed to the clans and the tribes when Joshua conquered the promised land. Whose father would he be at that court? I'm sorry, who would be his father at that court case? He would say, I am the son of Marlon or Balon. 
I am the son of Marlon. Why would he say that? Because the land that he has inherited is Marlon's land. Because in a technical legal sense, under the law that the Jews had, and remember we read it there in Deuteronomy, and I've forgotten the passage, but Deuteronomy chapter 25 from verse 5, he is technically, legally, the son of Marlon. Two different fathers. Go back to the two different genealogies for Jesus. Now, I'll actually just point you back to something I asked you during this morning's sermon when it comes to, when it comes to laws. Why are there no laws concerning if a man fell asleep at night and woke up in the morning a butterfly? You would say, never happens. There's no need for a law concerning men who go to sleep and wake up butterflies. But there are laws concerning brothers who die childless, leaving a childless wife. Why? Because it happened. It happened a lot. It happened so much that there needed to be a formalised process that everybody understood and recognised. It needed to be a controlled, formalised process to ensure that people were not done out of their inheritance, that widows did not end up poverty-struck because they had neither a husband nor a child to inherit their rightful land. A formalised process to deal with a problem. And if we were to go back in time to that time, well, death is a constant trouble. Uh, you know... We've pointed this out many times here as we've you know, gone through teaching on various different passages. Things that we consider to be nothing in that day and that time were mortal and deadly. We get a fever, we don't care, we have some painkillers, we have some antibiotics, we have a rest, we get some care, we get over it. In that day, you get a fever and everybody's very worried. Why? You might just die of it. There was no effective treatment. So, why do I believe there are two separate genealogies? Not because I know it for certain. I don't. Nobody knows it for certain. MacArthur, in his commentaries, etc., what he has said, he doesn't honestly know for certain. He has given you an interpretation or his own his own conclusions after studying the passages. I don't know for certain, you know, but we're not talking about life-changing doctrine in a way. All I'm telling you is that there is a biblical reason why both genealogies can be different and yet can be absolutely correct. One traces his bloodline. I would guess that's Matthew through Jacob. So Jesus, Joseph, one traces, I mean, the bloodline of Joseph, Jesus, Joseph, Jacob, and on back. One traces, traces the legal lineage of Joseph. I'm imagining that Joseph was the son of what is called a leveret marriage, which we read about in Deuteronomy. And so the other traces what would be called his legal genealogy. Um, that there are some common names between David and Joseph, is in a way absolutely not important because if you've read your whole Bible, you know that Jewish families used and reused the same names again and again and again. You know, it was absolutely nothing unusual to have multiple descendants sharing the same name. And that would be my answer. In a way, I say this, this does not weaken the Bible. Why? Well, 
if, if you're a plotter, if you're trying to invent a false religion, if you're just trying to make up something, you know, the, the, um, the postmodernists talk about literature being a grasping of power and assigning meaning to literature is, 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 is attempting to take power. If you're attempting to set up a religion in order to take power over idiots, fools, easily led astray, numbskulls, would you set up your religion with two different genealogies or just the one? Just the one repeated twice would be all you needed. But Matthew, for Matthew's reasons, gives us a genealogy that traces Jesus to David and Abraham. Matthew wanted everyone to know that this child called Jesus was a son of Abraham, a son of David, so that you would immediately understand that he's saying all those promises in the Old Testament that concentrate down onto those two men, they are fulfilled in Jesus. Luke actually had a different target and he went via the line of legal descent, I think, to get us all the way back to someone else. He took us via David and via Abram, but he went all the way back to last little part of um, verse 38. The son of Adam, the son of God. And so Jesus is, once again, we have this, we, we looked at it last time we studied the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is the son of Adam, a man, a seed of the woman, the son of God, divine, able to pay the price of sin, able to redeem the soul of a man, able, as it were, to set the captives free from slavery. And so Luke records the line all the way back to Adam. And so Luke is once again saying to us, and he's been establishing this from the very start, this Jesus whom I speak to you about, this Jesus, he is the legitimate saviour of mankind. Luke has in his eye that which was spoken of in Genesis chapter 3. In his mind's eye, Luke has never forgotten this. God speaking to the serpent, verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, curses are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Luke's never forgotten it. In, in, in the light of everything that he's written in these first three chapters, he wants us to keep coming back to that passage and say and seeing that this is the seed of the woman. This is the promised saviour. This is the crusher of the serpent's skull. This is the one. Luke then provides for us, as it were, a convenient bridge to that which the Apostle Paul had to say. Let's have a look at this. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. We'll start reading it, verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, you might remember as we started our studies into the book of Genesis, I said, um, I'm not going to die on the hill of a young earth seven day creation, though that's the way I read the scripture. As far as I'm concerned, the earth is less than 10 days old, 10,000 years old, I should say. And as far as I'm concerned, God did create the earth in six days, merely by speaking it into being according to his will, by his mighty power through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he rested on the seventh day. I take it as given. But that's not the hill I'll die on, but I will die on the hill, this hill. Adam and Eve were real people, especially created to bear the image of the living God. If, if uh, to satisfy your desire to, um, I guess the word I'd put in is in some way or other find agreement with contemporary science and the supposed age of the universe and the supposed age of the earth, you want to, you want to accept those ages? I'm telling you, if you want to deny that there was an Adam and an Eve and that they were specially created image bearers of the living God, you are basically destroying Christian theology and you are basically destroying the theology of salvation that Scripture reveals to us. Because it's important that we understand that this Adam who was called the Son of God is a type of the one who was to come Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, born of a woman, but not the Son of any man, the Son of God himself. Take that away, and we have nothing. What are we talking about? Well, suddenly we've got this vague and almost meaningless religion. There's a God who was pretty upset about a few things, but he loved us so much that he didn't really care about those few things. And he sent a very nice person into the world whose name was Jesus to show us that we could do some nicer things rather than the things he was pretty upset about. And that if we did those nicer things, well, there's every chance he'd be really happy with us and he'd make us happy. That's not salvation. That's nonsense. That's rubbish. That doesn't deal with humanity the way we are. You know, what are we like? What are you like? As, as, as much as you wish you weren't a sinner, what are you like? You know, are you struggling even right now to concentrate on the word of God, though you've got it open in front of you? Why is that? Why is your mind so easily distracted? You know, why are we like that? Why is it that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make a confession. There are times when I find it hard to pray. And there are times at night when I just want to fall asleep. I confess, I start to pray and I'll fall asleep praying. 
Isn't that terrible? In a way, that's disgusting. I start to pray because I know that eventually I'll just fall asleep praying. Why am I like that? For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. That's why I'm like that. That's why you're like that. That's why we're all like that. No one here's in any different boat. We need this Jesus, the Son of God, to be truly a man who is the seed of the woman. That's what we need. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start reading at verse 12. Now, Paul here is defending the resurrection from the dead. But look at where he goes as he defends the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Stop. Why would it be that Paul assumes that that which is common to Jesus is common to us? Because Jesus is human as we are human. He is truly divine. He is truly human. He is fully God. He is fully man. The, that, that fully human Lord Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And if he's not resurrected from the dead, none of us are. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be, mis be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, then sorry, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptised on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. 
And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives us a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. Now he's quoting there from the book of Genesis where God breathed his breath of life into Adam. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as, as is the man of heaven, so also are, are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man to dust. Sorry, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul builds his defence of the resurrection on the death of a man, the first man, Adam. He builds it on the reality of the existence of Adam, Adam's fall into sin and Adam's death. Basically, Paul is telling us that we came from the earth because we came from Adam, therefore to dust we return. But we have been united with one Though he was born of the seed of woman, though he was truly man, yet he came down from above. He came from heaven. He is the eternally begotten Son of God who has taken upon himself flesh. He has been resurrected. He has ascended on high. He is in heaven at the right hand of God. And with him we have unity, oneness. We are his children, we are his body, he is the head, we are the body. We go where the head has gone. That which has happened to Christ is counted as having happened to us and it will happen to us. Our hope of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, in the very presence of God is all based upon the fact that Jesus set right that which Adam set wrong. And so when we look at the genealogy in the Gospel of Luke and see how Luke carefully traces it all the way back to Adam, the son of God, well, remember, Luke and Paul were close friends. Paul calls calls Luke the beloved physician. Luke, the beloved physician. God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, breathing out the Scriptures, has given us a genealogy that assures us that Jesus is the Saviour, that he is the one who does what Adam failed to do. What is sin? Well, one of the words in Scripture that describes sin is the word that says falling short of the mark. Didn't get there. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Didn't get to where they were intended to go. Adam didn't get to where God intended him to be, is a way of saying it. It's not necessarily a good way of saying it. 
I say that carefully. God's plan and intention all along was to reveal his glory through the redemption of humanity. It was always his plan. His plan wasn't invented the moment Adam sinned. His plan was always there. It was always in place. Adam was created, sinless, God knowing that he could fall and God knowing that he would fall and God ordaining that this would happen. But as humans, understanding life in this creation, in this present age, as humans, understanding life in time, as humans, understanding what God is doing, the answer or the... the, the, the line of thought that I'm giving you is if Adam had have passed his probation or his testing, ultimately Adam would have been ruling at the right hand of God. He fell short of the glory of God. He's, in his testing, he fell short. It's Jesus who rules at the right hand of God, which was always God's intention. It was always the intention of Father, Son and Holy Spirit that the Son himself would take upon himself flesh to rule mankind created in the image of God. That he would be that, that um, you know, you see all these illustrations that you've ever heard a teacher give you. The bridge from humanity to divinity. It's kind of okay, you know, if it helps us to think clearly it's kind of okay. He would be the one that would bring mankind into fellowship with God and would bring God into fellowship with mankind. It was always God's intention that his people would be temples individually and that his people would be his temple collectively. The temple was defaced. It was desecrated. It was broken down. It's Jesus who has restored the temple, being truly God and being truly man, being the son of God. I'm just going to finish now. We're getting a um, fairly short message today in some, in some ways, but basically that's Luke's purpose. That's what he wants you to see from this genealogy. Jesus has legitimate claim to being the one who set right the things that Adam set wrong. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that we can rejoice in your goodness and your grace and your mercy to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit by whom we have been enlivened and enabled to trust in you. We pray, Father, that in this coming week you would turn our hearts and our minds to you, that we would be diligent in the pursuit of of the knowledge of God through the scriptures and through prayer and through fellowship one with another. Please help us to be a light upon the hill. Please help us to be obedient. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.